0: lord i think that for us sinners that we are we should make such a great sacrifice that he has done to to reconcile us to himself we we should receive that with great joy and delight the the god who did that is also the one who uses certain means to bring us to to bring his grace to us to bring us into connection with himself Means or tools as we have seen, that he uses to connect us with Christ in faith, tools that he uses to set Christ before us so that we come and believe and embrace him his, in his redemptive work. Remember what the three primary means of grace that we have seen are? the word, the scriptures is there? read and preached to us. Sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the third one is prayer. And so we're looking at those three primary means of grace now, breaking that down and looking at them in more detail. We've, we just finished last week looking at how He uses the Word to connect us to Christ and salvation in Him. And today we're looking at the sacraments and how he uses them, and then in the future we'll look at prayer. So this is an introductory uh, question about the sacraments. So, the, so, so that, that, that's where we've been and where we're going. Um, even though the sacraments uh, they are nothing without the word and not nearly as important as the word, the catechism has more content about the sacraments than it does about the word. Why would that be? Why is there a greater mass of questions pertaining to the sacraments? Well, it's because the sacraments have so often been wrongly used and neglected. And so we need more instruction on them. There will be a lot to cover in this section on the sacraments. We'll be at this for a few weeks. But I love the way the catechism begins, how it introduces the sacraments By talking about the efficacy of the sacraments. What do they do in our lives? How does God use them in our lives? It reminds us that the most important thing is that God uses baptism and the Lord's Supper in our lives. To deepen our relationship with him. And to cause us to grow in our relationship with him. Or even in the case of the word, to bring us into relationship with him at all. When faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that we come to salvation. He is so kind to give us these various means and to add to the word sacraments to bring about a strengthening of the word. They're they're sort of like Calvin said that they were like a buttress to the word. Like you have a buttress that supports the wall. The foundation is there and then you have a a buttress to to help strengthen the, the things that God has done for us. So again, the question related to this that we're looking at is question 91. So let's confess that together. I'll ask the question and then we'll say the answer together. So question 91. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in him that doth administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ And the the working of His Spirit Spirit in them that by faith receive them. For our scripture reading related to this, then we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. So I'll read that to you now. Please pay careful attention because this is the word of God. Be very precious to us. God has spoken through His word. So listen now as I read it to you. First Corinthians 10 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them... God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples. I just want to highlight that. Notice what it says. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted. And were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The word admonition means like a warning or something like that. or So so our for our counsel or our admonition. Verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. And there we end the reading of God's word. So you see in that last part, it talks about having having a kind of a fellowship through sacraments. And they would have idol feasts where they feasted before an idol and they had communion with the idol that way. And he says you can't have communion with idols and then have communion with the Lord at his table at the same time. It doesn't, it doesn't work. That's what he's warning us about. So may the Lord... Add his blessing to this reading of his word and now to the preaching of this word. This passage is a very solemn warning against a very common abuse that is found in the church in every age, as we're going to see the tendency to think that just because you were baptized and because you come to the Lord's table and and such things that you are right with God. You meet people like that all the time. If you're out about talking to people about where they are with God, they think that they're going to heaven because they have some connection with the church, because they're baptized, maybe because of some of the good things that they do, that they try to do their best they can, that sort of thing. But that's not the way that, that uh, you think if you know the Lord. You know something very different than that. God did not give His sacraments to his true children, to deceive them. He gave the sacraments to help us, to help us, not to give us a substitute to trust in, but to lead us to trust in Christ. The word sacraments, they're supposed to direct us to Christ, not to themselves as the ending point. I spoke about that when we had the Lord's table today, when we, we came to the table so I want to begin this afternoon with the warning that is in this passage. We're going to spend a lot of our time on this. Do not think, this is the warning, do not think that you are blessed simply because you were baptized and because you eat the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul shows us that this is not so with Israel as an example, Old Testament Israel. He explains that, that, they, had all, that, they, that they all had a kind of baptism And the kind of eating and drinking of Christ, like we do in the Lord's Supper, that corresponds to that in a certain way. Not in every way, but in certain ways. In verse 2, he speaks of their baptism of when they came across the Red Sea out of Egypt. And he calls it a baptism into Moses. Now, when you're baptized, what happens? You're immersed together with the thing that baptizes you. Okay, and when you're immersed together with whatever baptizes you, the thing that baptizes you changes your character. That's what baptism refers to. It's not so much immersion as it is immersion. Okay, two things being brought together and the one changes the character of others. So what happens with just ordinary water? If you are washed with water, it cleans you. It changes your, your situation, your character. But this is where it's a permanent change that comes about. If you, if you paint a, a green chair with red paint, then the paint is merged into the, the chair. They're brought together, and it changes the character of the chair. So it's no longer, I can't remember which color I used, but it's no longer the color it was originally, but now it's the other color. It goes from green to red or red to green, whatever, however you paint it. So that's the idea of what we're talking about. They were joined, merged together with Moses, As we're immersed together with our Lord Jesus Christ in baptism and it brings cleansing. Water is used to to signify. When Israel crossed the Red Sea, which they all did, they were baptized into Moses because they were joined to him as a new leader who is going to instruct them in the ways of God before. Pharaoh had been their ruler, but now Moses, who was God's servant, became their ruler, a ruler sent to lead them in God's ways. Everything was changed for them now because they were baptized into Moses. They had a whole new association. They were going to be given words of salvation by which to live. Now, I don't want to make it sound like they didn't have that at all when they were in Egypt, they did. They were God's people already, but there was a fundamental change in the whole nation. And the picture that is given us in the typology is going from the world into salvation. Now they had God's word. Moses was an apostle in the Old Testament, so to speak, who brought God's word to them. So merged with Moses, they would be among the people who are now led, corrected, protected, preserved, shown God's glory, and so on. But above all, they would have the working of God's spirit among them. Now, in verses 3 and 4, Paul explains how Israel also had a kind of partaking of Christ that corresponded to our partaking of him with the Lord's Supper. Okay, so we just saw there was something that corresponded to baptism. There was also something that corresponded to the Lord's Supper. Perhaps you'll remember how Israel ate manna that God sent from heaven while they were in the wilderness to sustain them in the wilderness. And perhaps you'll remember how that when they were thirsty and there was no water, that God brought water out of the rock and gave them water to drink. That's what Paul's talking about here. He refers to that here as what? Eating and drinking Christ, which is very interesting the way he, he, he paints that for us. You see, God was sustaining them physically in these ways so that they could carry on as his people and as he did that then it was God sustaining them it was Christ sustaining them by giving them regular food for their bodies and from heaven and water to drink so that they could live which again is a typology it corresponds to Jesus Christ giving us the living water and giving us uh, bread and His body and blood shed for for our sins. Paul is making a connection here with this. He refers to this as eating and drinking of Christ. So when we receive the Lord's Supper, we have true communion with Jesus Christ. Paul refers to this in verse 16 and 17, where he says that we have communion in the body and blood of Christ at the Lord's Supper. Communion. In other words, we are spiritually nourished and sustained by Christ crucified when we come to the Lord's table. We look to receive actual nourishment at the table. I'm going to say more about that later. Not by the bread and the wine itself. Not the sustenance of our bodies, our physical bodies. But by Christ himself whose benefits we receive by faith when we receive the signs and symbols of his body and blood in faith. And notice how Paul emphasizes that they all partook of these sacraments. They were all baptized into Moses, no exceptions. Everyone that came through the Red Sea, they were all with Moses. Don't know what their state was in terms of their own heart and so on, but all of them were outwardly they were immersed together with Moses. They were associated with him now. And uh, he emphasizes the same thing with the manna. They all ate of the manna and they all drank from the rock. No one was excluded from these proto-sacraments. Paul stresses this point, And he underscores it even more by saying that it was Christ of whom they ate and drank. He really drives that point home. Now, a little digression here. They all partake is not stated to teach us who may come to the Lord's table. I recently heard Robert Rayburn using this text to defend pedo communion. Paul is not illustrating here who is permitted to come to the table in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says they all ate and they all drank. No, that's not what he's doing. It would contradict 1 Corinthians 5, just five chapters back, where he teaches that we are to forbid to the table those who don't repent of their sins. Now, you see, these we're just talking about an association with Moses in a typology situation. We're not talking about how the Lord's table is to be fenced. We're not to let people come unless they're members in good standing who profess their faith, who have a credible profession of faith. The Egyptian Passover, likewise, was not restricted in, a, in in a sense it was a, a meal of sus, physical sustenance as well as one that had spiritual implications but when it was celebrated as an annual feast only those who were clean were allowed to partake you remember that there was a fencing of the of, of the Passover meal you remember that those who uh, were unclean said what can we do we weren't able to partake of the the Passover because we've been associated with a dead body, and then they, he, he, he gave them another time to do it um, 30 days later. So uh, this, is, this is an important clarification because I've, I've heard this passage used in a wrong way. This isn't talking about fencing the table. Paul's purpose here is to show us that even though all were baptized in Moses, they all were, and all of them ate the manna, it was their, they, they, it was their physical sustenance in the wilderness, all of them drank from the rock, that only those who had true faith were saved. So, Since they all partook of Christ, you would surely think that they were all saved, wouldn't you? I mean, if you partake of Christ, you're, you're, you're going to be converted by that, but not so. Paul shows that the mere receiving of baptism in the Lord's Supper does not automatically bring God's blessing and favor. That's what he's driving home in this passage. In fact, this participation of Israel in Christ did not... Secure his favor. Look what it says. For most of them. That's a remarkable statement. For most of them. In verse 5, he says, But with most of them. Notice the but. They, They all partake. They were all baptized. They all partook. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. To have their bodies scattered in the wilderness meant that they had fallen under God's wrath and judgment, under His curse. And it was not just a few. It was with most of them. Those are sobering words. His point is that even though they fed on Christ in these proto-sacraments, their faith was not strengthened and their hearts were not (sighs) renewed. They were God's people in an outward sense and they all had the same external privileges, but they were not all benefited by these privileges. They were not his people in a saving way. And I tell you, if you look out today, at the well, I told you before that in a, a statistics that were done a, a while back, a census that was done, it was back, the last one I saw about it was um, in the uh, 90s, I think, that, that uh, 85% of people in Nova Scotia were baptized. Do you think 85% of the people in Nova Scotia have life in Jesus Christ? With most of them, God is not pleased. Paul provides two pieces of evidence to show that their sacramental participation in Christ did not benefit most of them. What are those evidences? First, that they lusted after evil things. Here, they had the Lord himself as their meat and drink, and they had an appetite for other things. They had the eye for their neighbor's wife an adultery or for the riches of Egypt Wanting to, we don't want to live with this Moses. We want to live back in Egypt again. We had it better then. They complained as if the old life in Egypt they had left behind was better than what they obtained in the Lord. After all, they were in the wilderness. You know, they didn't. They didn't cherish being with the Lord. They missed the point. If you're unhappy with what God has done in your life, say He's not giving me what I wanted. He's not giving me the job that I wanted. He's not giving me the success that I wanted. He's not giving me the relationships that I wanted. Then you don't understand what you have in Christ. You have enough to make you more than content if you have Jesus Christ. Baptism shows you that you have a new identity in Jesus Christ and that cleanses you and gives you new life by His Spirit. You've got everything with that. And the Lord's Supper shows you that He is enriching you with His grace that He gives you life from from His crucifixion, from His sufferings for you, that you have life. If you still have your heart set on evil things, you don't understand what you have in Christ as represented in the sacraments. You say, well, the things that I want are not necessarily evil things. They become evil things if they are covetous things. If you want them and God hasn't given them to you and that causes you then to be bitter toward God and what He has for you in Christ then those things become evil things. You're lusting after evil things. That's the first evidence that the sacraments were not effectual in them. The second evidence was that they became idolaters. Very much connected, really. Here, out of all the peoples of the world, these people had the true God of grace and salvation revealed to them. But instead of worshiping Him, they wanted to adjust God to be they wanted, the way they wanted Him to be. That's what idolatry is. We say, I don't want God to be a God that you can only approach through the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's a good way for God to be. I want Him to be somebody that just kind of likes everybody the way they are. And that we don't have to come and humble ourselves and, and these kind of things. Or, or I want God to, you know, I want Him to have some different characteristics that He doesn't have. So, so we make idols I don't want Him to be so strong. I want Him to look inside and know everything about me. I want a little bit more distance. Maybe i make Him a little bit more of a force, but not a personal being that is a judge. I don't like, I don't like having Him judge me. So, so we modify and we adjust our worship so that the way that we approach God is the way that we devise rather than the way that God devises. We change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man he looks more like us he has characteristics more like we do instead of being a holy God that we can't even approach because he's a consuming fire and we're sinners we should be glad about that we don't want to change that he made it so we can come to him even though he's like that everybody wants to change that that's idolatry you're worshipping God you're you're modifying God and it's not long when you start doing that until you're worshipping a different God who's not even the true God at all. It moves from deviating from how God told us to approach Him to having a whole different God that you're approaching, that you've made up in your own mind. It's an idolatry. And that's what the nations do. Rather than rejoicing then in the unique revelation, that, it, rather than Israel rejoicing in the unique revelation they had of a living God, they rejoiced in their own distorted fabrications of God. They wanted to define God in their own way rather than sitting under his word and learning from him of how he was to be approached. What did they do? They set up the golden calf. What did they say about the golden calf? They didn't say this is another God. They said this is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. But we're going to worship him the way the Egyptians worship their God where they have a calf as a kind of a throne and set up their God on there. We want something that we can see. And they started partying and dancing and doing all kinds of different things that God had not appointed for them in their worship. God was displeased with them because they weren't approaching Him as a holy God. And so you see that on the one hand, they participated in feeding on Christ, but in truth, they did not receive Him, at least not in such a way that they were changed and transformed. So this willingness to receive Christ outwardly, but not in a way that will transform them, has been a huge problem with God's people in every age. It was a problem in the time of the prophets. Read through the Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. What do they talk about all the time? The people were happy enough to participate in the ordinances of the Lord at that time. They did a lot of worshiping at that time. And they did some of it, even the, what, the very elements that God had told them. But they, but they didn't trust. They, they, they trusted in their worship. Instead of in God, they said, we're your people and we're coming to you and we're doing all these sacrifices. Why aren't you blessing us? It was very clear that though they were participating in them, they were not benefiting from their approach of God. Their hearts were not changed. Like the people in Moses' day, they lusted after evil things and became idolaters. They worshipped in the high places. Again and again, God sent his prophets to call them to repentance. And again and again, they they persecuted the prophets and they would not repent all the while boasting that they were right with God because we're called by God's name and other people are not. We have circumcision. We have you know, all, all the ordinances. We have the temple. They presumed that because they were all baptized into Moses and because they all ate and drank at the table of the Lord, that they were secure even though their hearts were far from God. The prophets told them otherwise. What did the prophets say to them? one of the characteristic phrases they quoted God is saying to them, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Yeah, they come weeping at the altar and they come praying and fasting and doing all these things, but their heart is far away from me. There's no real faith, genuine faith there. The same problem remained and even got worse when Jesus came. The very people who ate at God's altar and who drank of Christ in the Old Testament way, and boasted in the covenants that God had made that were promising Christ, that they were the very ones that crucified Him. They crucified the Savior that was sent to them. They did all of this in the very name of Him whom they were opposing. They took up the sword in the king's name to kill the king. How does that jive? They claim to have the approval and sanction of the one that they were seeking to destroy. In God's name, they crucified the Son of God. Jesus applied to them the same words of the prophet that that were used by the prophets These people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts have remained far away from me. When he came around them, he exposed that they lusted after evil things, and they were often embarrassed because their hypocrisy came out whenever Jesus showed up. The light was there, and they, they, all, all the darkness in them was shone by, by his presence. They didn't like it. They were so attached to their own idolatrous conception of God that they could not even recognize their own Messiah when he came to them and when he did miracles all over the place around them and spoke gracious words to them in their presence that corresponded with all of God's promises. They didn't even recognize him because their idolatry was so great. So there they were, boasting in his name and feeding upon him in their ordinances, yet despising him and rejecting him at the same time. Curious thing, isn't it? Common thing, though. Very, very common. Very common. That's what we're seeing in all ages. So it was in the time of the prophets. It was in the time when Christ came even worse. The same problem is also found in the early church. You might think, okay, now... Now they've got the church has been separated out from the uh, from the people that did reject Christ and only the people now that are professing Christ and been baptized in his name by the apostles of all people. Surely those who are baptized by the apostles are going to have the true cleansing that baptism points to of Christ and his spirit. And surely all who partook of the Lord suffer in those days when the apostles were still around, when the New Testament was written. Surely they are the ones who are truly being nourished up in their faith and cleansed by Christ. Especially since unlike the proto-sacraments, the apostles did fence the table. They didn't let people just come in. They had to profess clearly and they had to uh, be walking with the Lord or they were to be removed from the, the table. So surely all of them would be benefited from it. But not so. Right here in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul is giving this warning to the church at Corinth because the problem that was in the past with Israel was now their problem. He's not writing to the people that hadn't come to Christ. He's writing to the people who had professed him. Baptized disciples were feeding on Christ at the Lord's table who are lusting after evil things and who had become idolaters. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns them that rather than feeding on Christ for life, they were feeding on Him unto condemnation. They were coming to the table with malice and wickedness in their heart. Not malice and wickedness from which they wished to be delivered. I might come to the table with malice and wickedness, but it's malice and wickedness from which I wish to be delivered. We come confessing our sin before the Lord when we come rightly, looking to Him to save us. But if I come... Cherishing malice and wickedness. I'm, not coming, I'm coming idolatrously. I'm not coming the right way. They had been baptized with the same baptism as the apostles and were eating the same bread and drinking the same cup. But God was not pleased with them because they lusted after evil things and committed idolatry. They ate Christ ritually, but they did not embrace Christ savingly. So you see plainly that even the sacraments of the New Testament have no power in themselves. That's what it says in our catechism question, isn't it? On their own, no power on their own to save. Even when administered by apostles, they do not automatically save those who receive them. That's what the catechism says. Not from any virtue in them or in him, the minister that doth administer them. That's not where the virtue is, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his Spirit in them that by faith receive them. A very clear example of this is Simon Magnus in Acts chapter 8. No sooner had he been baptized with the same baptism that all the other believers had received, and he was charged by Peter with these words of having a heart that was not right in the sight of God and being poisoned by bitterness. And bound by iniquity. A man baptized. Clearly he had been baptized. And clearly he did not receive Christ's blessing. In his baptism. It is not automatic. The problem of participation without transformation. Has continued on through all the ages of the church. How deep this problem was at the time of the reformation. There was still baptism. There was still the Lord's Supper at the time of the Reformation when the Reformation began to to work its work. But how idolatrously these were practiced by most people at that time. The people were even taught that they did not have to have personal faith in Christ as long as they were were baptized and partook of the sacraments and, and the other things that were added to that. There were all kinds of other prayers to saints and indulgences and all kinds of different things that, that these things are, are what, what do the trick rather than faith in Christ. The reformers were men who were raised up in the church who had, had come to the knowledge of the truth and they spoke against these abuses in the church. They showed that the Pope was Antichrist because he was, had taken his place on, as the seed of Christ. There was one who was, who was trying to be a substitute to Christ. Look to me to be saved. Look to my priests to be saved. No, Christ is the priest that we look to to be saved. He's the high priest with one sacrifice for all time. They taught that salvation does not come through the sacraments, these reformers, uh, but through faith in Jesus Christ who is revealed in word and sacrament. The reformers did not attempt to start a new church any more than Jesus did. It ended up happening that there was a division of the church because they were cast out of the organized church, just like Jesus was cast out of the Old Testament church outside the camp and had to bear reproach because he was rejected by the establishment of the church. But you see, their goal was not to start a new church. Church. Their goal was to reform the one church, and that's what they did, and they ended up, like Jesus did, being removed from it. They preached against the idolatry, and they called the members of the church to repent and believe on Christ alone, who was set forth in the ministry of word and sacrament. Many people did repent, and there was a great reformation. But despite all their efforts, the problem continues with us to this day. It continues in those churches that are not reformed in the sense that we were just talking about, that still rely on you know, uh, human priests and offerings and sacrifices and all these things. Follow the Pope as a substitute Christ who rely on the sacraments and those who administer them rather than on Christ himself revealed in the word and sacrament. We need to help those who are caught up in this. We need to reach out to them. We need to evangelize them and, and show them the way of truth. I'm glad that that happened to me when I was in a church that was, was, not, uh, was, was not really following the Lord. Uh, and this, this is the kind of church I'm going to talk about now. There's the ones I just talked about. It's also found in those so-called Protestant churches. Okay? Again, the majority of Protestant churches that reject the word of Christ to follow their own ways who worship God and worship Christ according to their own imaginations. They take the name of Christ at the table and they change the meaning of everything. They reject Christ crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and they turn Him into a therapy guy. Someone that makes you feel good. Someone that will be your friend. Someone, all all this kind of stuff. And there's nothing about reconciliation with a holy God because, oh, we don't like that. Idolatry. The name of Christ is used falsely. The sacraments are not effectual for them. They can be baptized. They can come to the Lord's table. And it doesn't benefit because they're given over to idolatry. With most of them, God is not pleased. So my brothers and sisters, let me urge you to hear the warning that's given here by the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 10-12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Do not think just because even in your case, maybe you're in a Reformed church and you participate in the life of the church and you have the name of God on you and you eat at His table, that that makes you automatically right with God. Baptism and eating at the table does not automatically save anyone in any church. It is only Christ who is represented in the sacraments who saves you. It is only when you trust in Him to whom baptism and the Lord's Supper point that you will be saved and obtain eternal life. You can be in the most orthodox, biblical, reformed uh, church that follows the scriptures all the way in every single detail and even does it perfectly. There's not a church like that. But if there was, and you you could be as lost as ever. If you're continuing to lust after evil things, if your heart remains unchanged, if if you're not seeking Christ and His salvation. Now again, when I say lust after evil things... I don't mean, of course, we're tempted. We have, we have all kinds of temptations. We sin. We give way to those temptations. But what are you doing? Are you looking to Christ as your Savior? Are you saying, I'm okay because I'm in the church. I'm okay because I'm in a good church. See, it doesn't matter that you've been baptized or that you come to the Lord's table a thousand times. It's done you no good if your heart is wed to idolatry. Your heart is not right. You're still in bondage. Now, you may think you stand because of your baptism and you're feeding on Christ. But if you're not nourished up in the, your faith, you're twice dead. Because you're so dead that even as one who is, has had Christ held out to you in the word and sacraments, you still are dead. So you're, you're twice dead. One thing to be dead and have never have heard. It's another thing to have heard and been immersed in all of these things and still be dead. So, okay, but yet there is a wonderful promise here to encourage you if you want the real Christ. As I say, it's, I'm not talking about that we're, we're perfected here. The point is we're sinners who are clinging to Christ. That's what makes us right with God. Having been, having seen this dreadful warning, then let's look now at the promise. Promise given in verse 13: No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted. Beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Is there some temptation that has overtaken you? Lusting after evil things? Idolatry that wants to modify God, make up God instead of receiving Him as Word. Stuff you don't like about God? You'd rather be in Egypt? Is there some temptation that has taken hold of you? Not just one that is knocking, but one that has overtaken you? Does it seem too great to overcome Well, the promise here is that God will provide the way of escape for you so that you will be able to bear that temptation without being conquered by it, without being destroyed and pulled away from your Lord to apostasy. Come to his promise in faith, the promise revealed in the word and sacrament that all is found in Christ and you will overcome. This is an encouragement to you that you don't have to continue in bondage. To sin and idolatry like Israel did. Nobody has to continue. God has made a way of escape for those caught in sin. And the way of escape is Jesus Christ, the only Savior. In Him there is both forgiveness of sin and there is freedom from bondage to sin. How do you obtain the promises? How do you obtain that promise? It is not by taking the sacraments like pills. Not even by reading the word of God. As if that were a pill. Oh, I read the scriptures, so now I'm good. It's what Paul says in verse 14. You flee from idolatry. Realize there is nothing in these things that you are turning to for your comfort and blessing. Personal achievement, success, career goals that cannot fill your soul. Don't be filled up. You must turn to Christ. You repent from even those things that are not necessarily bad in themselves, to come to Christ. Idolatry holds those things instead of Christ. Repentance, you reject those and you come to Christ in faith and say, my life is in Christ. Sexual pleasures and pornography, that can't fill your soul. It can't. Revenge, bitterness, getting even with those that have wronged you, that can't fill your empty soul. It can't justify you. Riches, purchasing something new, the excitement of a new purchase, that can't fill your empty soul. Morality, oh, there's a good one. Giving yourself over to morality. I'm the most moral person. That can't fill your empty soul either. You know where the escape is found. Jesus Christ is the way of escape that God has provided. Partaking of sacraments will do no you you no good apart from faith in him. You must come to him to lose your life that you may find it in him. Stop leaning on everything else and start leaning on Jesus Christ. The life that he offers you is a life restored to God. That's the best thing ever. What could be better than to have God as your portion? I love it that the songs that you chose today were so many songs that were talking about. God is our portion and the fruit that we have with him it beautifully dovetailed in with what we're talking about here, where there is full in, in him, in, in God, in Christ, where there is full and complete forgiveness of sins, where you can truly walk with God in communion with him, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ where you're enabled to live in Christ as God's true sons and daughters. Until you come to Him, you are a wilderness. You're not just in the wilderness, you are a wilderness. An unfruitful wilderness. And until you turn from your idols, you will remain a wilderness. Only Christ delivers us from the wilderness. That's why Paul tells you to flee from idolatry. Because it keeps you from Christ. It keeps you in the wilderness even when you're living in the church, have been baptized in His name and eating the Lord's Supper in the wilderness. There are so many who do that. They are surrounded by the things of Christ, but like Israel, they are still feeding on idols. That's where their food is. Trying to eat at two tables maybe. The idols keep you from Christ. Christ is the way of escape. Come to Him instead of them. That's what faith does. It falls upon Christ. You remember that beautiful picture we saw when we did the Song of Solomon about the bride and what was she seen doing? Who is this coming out of the wilderness leaning on her beloved? That's what you do. Instead of leaning on all these other things for your life that are idols, you lean upon Jesus Christ the Savior. You say, Lord, you do the saving. I can't save myself. You do the saving. I'm leaning on you, and He brings you out of the wilderness. So, you see that the hope of true deliverance comes only from Jesus Christ, not from a mere participation in the sacrament. Now, I want to have a third thing here that we look at. I know this is long, but bear, bear, this is important to hear. Beware of a reactionary response that denies that there is an efficacy to the sacraments. A reactionary response that says, okay, well, the sacraments don't save me, so there's no power at all to be found. There's no grace to be found at all in the sacrament. You don't want to go there either. That's another error that's not biblical. What, what defines an error when it's not what God has revealed to us? The Bible does show that the sacraments have an efficacy. They have a workingness in us. That's what we mean by uh, an efficacy. They work in us. So there are those who seeing that the benefits of salvation come only from Christ assume that there's no blessing to be found in the sacraments at all. As far as they're concerned, the sacraments are nothing more than a testimony to other people that we belong to Christ. Even though baptism represents cleansing by Christ, they look for no cleansing from Christ at their baptism. Even though the Lord's Supper represents being nourished by his body and blood, they look for no nourishment from Christ at his table. Now, I worded that very carefully. They don't look for nourishment from the sacrament per se. They look for nourishment from Christ. When they come to the sacrament. They don't look for cleansing from baptism. On its own. But they look for cleansing. When they are baptized. Looking to Jesus Christ. There is a, there's a vast difference in that. We are resting in Christ alone. For our salvation the sacraments. Direct us to him. And you see our baptism by the way. There is a, a whole question about this. In the larger catechism. It talks about improving our baptism. And it talks about how yeah, you are only baptized once. But all your life long. You look back and say, Lord, you have cleansed me by your saving work, by your spirit and by your cross. You have cleansed me, and I'm leaning on you. I'm looking to you for that cleansing that was represented at my baptism. And all your life long, you go back to that to find comfort and to look to him for strength, to point you to Christ again. So, do you see then what these people are doing that I'm talking about, though, that say, oh, there's no efficacy in the sacraments? They're reacting. Because some people look for automatic blessing from the sacraments. These people are not going to look for blessing at all. Okay, they're, 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 it's a tragic thing. Because God has given us the sacraments. They're, they're precious. They're valuable. They're useful to us. God has given us the sacraments to bring more grace to us as his people. They really do benefit us. And they really are designed to do something for us when we come in the right way. They hold Christ out to you as the one who has life and blessing. They invite you to come to him and they are signs of his saving work that he does in you. Baptism is a sign of his washing away of your guilt and your rebellion against God forever. Washes you forever so that you are forgiven and so that you serve God forever. It is the mercy of you, as we saw before, into Christ crucified for forgiveness of righteousness. And it involves the mercy of you into the Holy Spirit for a new heart and a new life for God. Christ says he, bapt- Christ baptizes us with the spirit represented by water baptism. It's cleansing of our heart and cleansing of our guilt so that we are made righteous by Christ. And the Lord's Supper holds out Christ crucified to you as the one who nourishes you to live for God. So it's a little different. It's about nourishment. It tells you to look to Him for that nourishment. It doesn't tell you to look to the, the, that bread and wine on the table. for your, it, it says look to Christ, who is represented by the bread and the wine. He is your spiritual food and drink to keep you going in God's ways, to keep you satisfied in God's ways. Isn't that an important part of it? Remember when I was talking about like, they, they, they lusted after other things because they weren't satisfied in the Lord Himself. He was not their portion. So do you need this? Do you need to to be renewed and nourished up in satisfaction of Christ? Of course you do. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul shows us that with the Lord's Supper, we really should expect to receive something when we participate in faith and repentance. We should look for and expect real communion with Christ by our coming. Look at what he says in verse 15 and 16. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? I actually have a fellowship going on, a communing in Christ's blood that was shed when I come to the Lord's Supper, or I should. And the bread which we break, he says, is it not, same thing, the communion Of the body of Christ. Communion is having a share with. A participation in. You actually receive the nourishment that your soul so desperately needs. The cleansing that you need. It's a communion that will satisfy your thirst. Okay, if I drink something and I'm thirsty, I come away with satisfied thirst. That's the idea. Not the elements themselves, but Christ who we receive as we eat and drink at the table. You will receive no satisfaction or blessing from Christ if you keep on feeding on your idols so. Remember Paul already told you that you must flee from idolatry in verse 14 if you're to find God's way of escape. So that's what kept Israel from benefiting from the baptism, from baptism and, feeding on, and their feeding on Christ. It will keep you from benefiting too, even if you're partaking of the sacrament. So this turning from idols is so important that Paul repeats it again. He talked about before. Look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So there's a partaking here. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. You're looking for one or the other for your, to, to satisfy, to quench, to quench your thirst. One or the other to feed you. One or the other to cleanse your life. The sacraments teach you to continually come to Christ with your sins that you may be given life by Christ. Paul is urging you to use the sacrament, you see, to cast yourself on Christ alone. When you're not resting in Christ, you'll have wandering eyes that look all over the place for comfort or something Something that you can have, something that you want, lusting after all these other things—some happiness, you know, video games, oh, pornography. Oh, you're, you're looking for all these things: riches, honors that I get, acclamations from other people, communion, Christ. If you're if you're feeding on all these other things, it's, it's going to be it's it's, it's barren. You, you're not you're not interested. You're already satiated with all these other things. You will feel that you always you, you you will need some you will feel that Christ is not sufficient. You will be barren and unfruitful in your knowledge of Christ. My brothers and sisters, the sacraments teach you that Christ is all you need. Do not come then to them with eyes for something else. Come to be wholly satisfied with Him. Come empty to be filled. Flee from idolatry. You have everything you need from Him. Come to be filled up by Him, to be satisfied, to be nourished fully, fully comforted, and you will be filled. He will meet you at the table. He will meet you so that you can start living sacrificially for Him and for others because you will see that you have everything in Him. When You, you, you can live sacrificially when you feel that you have an abundance. Paul was a debtor to everyone because he said, I've received so much. When He answers you, You have nothing else to ask for. Your service is unto him. Isn't that what will make a difference in your life? I mean, if you're bitter about the past and you feel like you've been abused and broken, Christ will fill you with his grace and you can be done with your bitterness. You can give thanks for the hard things of your past. That's when you really know you've come through that you can say, Lord, thank you because these things drove me to find you as my portion. If you're always flaring up at others and being offended by it with them in anger, Christ can fill you with his grace so that you can love others as he has loved you. If you're selfish and cannot find it in your heart to serve others, Christ can fill you up so that you will want to serve them and lay down your life for them as he has laid down his life for you. And those temptations, are so, they're so strong. Christ can fill you with his grace so that you will be so satisfied with him that all those temptations will lose their appeal. That's what you want to do when you come to the Lord's table. You're coming to say, Lord, give me yourself that I may delight. Give me Christ that I may delight in him and be filled with him so that I will no longer be going after all these other things. I need you to give me what you have promised. What we've seen today is so important. I hope that you'll take it to heart. Look to be filled with Christ at the communion table. Believe me, there's plenty in Him to fill you up and beyond. The world will never satisfy you at last. You will keep on feeding and you'll keep on hungering and thirsting, but you will never be satisfied at the world's table or the table of demons. But the table of Jesus Christ, you will find food that truly satisfies you forever if you feed on Him. Now there are times when you may struggle in this life, even when you are feeding upon Christ, but your hope is in the Lord and the promises that He has made, that He is your portion, and that when you see Him, you will be like Him and you will be satisfied when you awake with His likeness. Please stand. Well, Lord God... We come before you with thanksgiving that you have set before us Jesus Christ in Him crucified. You have set that forth to us. You have set Him forth to us in the Gospel that is found in the Holy Scriptures all the way from Genesis to Revelation. The Gospel was preached to them as well as to us. And yet it did not benefit them because they did not receive it in faith. And so it is, Lord, with us so often in this day gospel's plain it's even clearer than ever it was it's fuller more fully revealed and it does not benefit many who hear and then father there are the sacraments you have added them to your word in order to be a blessing to us that we can have a way to to come at a time in our worship service where we come and we say lord give me these things that you have promised lord give me yourself give me give me christ the crucified one that I might know of the cleansing that I have in Him, and that I might walk with Him, that I might be nourished up in Him, that I might might be satisfied in Him. I might find joy and delight in my Savior. Father, we need this. We are a people who who easily become distracted and and diverted from from what You have called us to do and to be. And we need to continually be refreshed and rejuvenated (laughs) And so our eyes are on You, Lord. And we come before You, Lord, each Lord's Day, to look for blessing. We look for blessing from Your Word. And we look for blessing at the table. And we look for blessing all through our life, looking back at our baptism, at the cleansing, that when we came to the door of Your house, You said, I cleanse You at the door so You can come into My kingdom. I wash You in My blood that was shed on the cross. I pardon Your sins. I wash your heart so that you have a new heart that will serve me and be devoted to me. The forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ. Those are the things that you have given to your people as their portion. And we thank you that Christ himself is our portion. Lord, may we cherish him. May we be filled with him. Oh, Lord, nourish us, we pray. Deliver us from our idolatry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our song of response is 25C. Receive now the blessing of the Lord. And upon receiving that, respond with a covenantal amen. If you are one of God's children. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.